Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly, wine production in 2019 falls by 10% globally. Australia wine exports on the rise. Winery opens in Paris's Eiffel Tower. Marks and Spencers and Spa own label wines to be 100% vegan. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. So Katie, it's been a busy week and we're a little delayed in our podcast this week. So much so that I said we're a day late and a dollar short, which Matthew didn't understand. Yeah, I still don't because we, we don't get paid for this podcast. So Matthew, why were you so busy this week? Well, the highlight of my week was going to a tasting in Sonoma at a sparkling wine bar called Sai, and I got to taste Cristal for the first time. So Cristal is, of course, one of the iconic champagnes. Um, it goes back to the 1870s when it was made for Tsar Alexander II in Russia, when the bottle was actually made out of crystal. And then it was revived after the uh, Second World War as the prestige cuvee for Louis Roederer. And although the wine is not bottled in crystal anymore, it kind of reflects that tradition. And then actually the bottle shape is the same as it was in the 1870s. And it's fascinating to taste these wines because they're so iconic and so expensive to actually find out what they tasted like. So which vintages did you taste? Uh, quite a few, which is what made it really interesting. We had the 09 from a Magnum, um, 07, 08, and 02. Personally, my highlight was the 07. There was just a nice maturity to it, but still very fresh. Um, 08 um, is apparently an extremely prestigious vintage, but the 07 just has a little bit extra to it. And then the 02 was maybe a little faded, but still the wines, the freshness, Pinot Noir-based wines, just really had that intensity and complexity and concentration to them. So a little disclaimer here is Matthew attended this Cristal tasting because I alerted him to it. Unfortunately, I was unable to attend because I was in Southern California uh, hosting a group from China and touring the wineries of Central Coast. Uh, And it's been 10 years since I lived in the Central Coast in Santa Barbara, and I've only had a few visits back. However, I've tried to stay up to date with new producers, wine styles, etc., of which there are many, and that's what I love about the Central Coast, is that there always seems to be something new happening. Anyways, I was happy to go back and see it for myself and explore parts of Santa Barbara County and Paso Robles that I hadn't seen before, and witnessing it from a different perspective as I was accompanying the Chinese guests uh, who were educators from all over the country, Shanghai, Beijing, Shandu. Um, and the highlights for me were Deerberg and Star Lane, who put Happy Canyon AVA in Santa Barbara on yes, the map. Yes, there really is an AVA called Happy Canyon. As well as a tour of Domaine de la Cote, Santa Rita Hills Vineyards with Sashi Mormon, and a tasting with Raj Parr. And then in Paso, uh, we had a lovely tasting and dinner with Giornata Wines, who showcased their range based on Italian varieties, uh, which, judging from the tasting, do very well in specific pockets of Paso Robles. Well, that's interesting to hear, because Italian varieties you think should work well in California, but there just aren't very many planted. There are not, but... Judging from the tasting again, I think they would do well. Um, though Paso Robles is an interesting AVA because there are so many pockets and different kind of climates and 
cooling influences that allow different varieties to grow very well. Yeah, and for those that don't know, Paso Robles is really um, different from the rest of California. It's a bit warmer, but it still has a very strong coastal influence, so much more suited to Rhone and Mediterranean varieties. Very cool nights. They struggle keeping the acid levels down, surprisingly enough. And beyond that, uh, we visited Tablas Creek, which was sort of a pilgrimage for me because though I have visited Tablas Creek before, we've been longtime fans of the wines. I'd never met Jason Haas, and he was the one that hosted the group. And we've been fans of his writing, but this trip I got to meet him in the flesh. So I tried to maintain my composure as a true Jason fan. And what's Jason like? Well, he's very articulate. He's very authoritative in his speech as in his writing. But, you know, he's very down to earth as well. So he never never comes across as uh, pompous or arrogant. Yeah, coincidentally enough, I tasted Tablas Creek's Esprit de Tablas Blind today alongside their um, sister winery in Chateauneuf de Pape, Chateau de Beaucastel. And the Tablas Creek really stood up and it was difficult. You just wouldn't identify it as a California wine in the kind of stereotypical sense. And rounding out our weekend wine is good news that the fire crisis is easing up and power has returned to Sonoma and people are going back home. Yeah, a welcome relief. So bring on the rain. Yeah, can't wait. And now on with the news. Figures were published last week by the International Organization of Vine and Wine, predicting that the 2019 vintage globally will be 10% lower than last year, with production of 263 million hectoliters. That may seem a drastic reduction, but 2018 saw incredibly high yields, the second highest levels of production this century, and 2019 broadly seems to be back to normal. The lower yields in Italy, France, and Spain, the three largest wine-producing countries, were below average due to bad weather, including frost and drought, although Portugal actually increased production. Surprisingly, the United States is expected to see a slight fall in production, even though producers we've talked to have spoken about the large amount of grapes they've been receiving. Perhaps the small decline in production is only relative to the even larger crop of 2018. South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, and Chile also saw lower production levels than 2018. So all I've been hearing throughout Napa and Sonoma County is about the wine glut or the grape glut. So that doesn't really reflect in these numbers. So why is that, Matthew? Well, this is thing in California has been two successive really high yield, high production vintages. So even though 2019 looks like it's uh, less than 2018, it's still very, very high. And you have all these producers who um, have a lot of wine left over from 2018 that they need to sell. And now they've got all this wine from 2019 that they need to sell. So even though it hasn't increased, it feels like an increase because you've got these kind of vintages uh, clustered together. Well, however it all shakes out, it's a good market for bulk wine. Exports of Australian wine in the 12 months leading up to September 2019 were of record value, even though volume decreased. China led the increase in value, with a rise of 18% to 1.2 billion Australian dollars, although the UK, Japan and Germany all fell. 
The rise in value was dominated not just by China, but also by premium wine, as bulk wine fell by 3% in value and 10% in volume. Overall, the average price of bottled exported wine hit a high of $6.79 per litre. And so, Katie, um, it seems like this emphasises the focus on premium Australian wine in recent years rather than inexpensive Australian wine. It does, and I think it's not to be overlooked the marketing efforts that Wine Australia has been putting forth in the U.S. and other markets. They have been applauded in their initiatives, uh, which from a personal point of view, I think have been very targeted and very interesting uh, with different trade tastings in different markets, but just the way that they're engaging all of the trade in trying to help them promote Australian wine abroad. I agree. Um, I was at a tasting a few weeks ago, um, as documented on my own website, matthewsworldofwineanddrink.com. A little bit of self-promotion there. Shameless. In which I tasted some pretty high-end Cabernets from across Australia, emphasizing the regionality of of the country. And also other wines from around the country, different great varieties, different styles, really emphasizing the versatility of the wines and also the quality and that they're worth paying for. Here in the US, it's quite difficult because it's competing with California wine, which is also expensive, and trying to persuade uh, domestic consumers to buy Australian wine instead of California wine is hard. But they're working uh, very, very hard to do that. And I think they're doing a pretty good job. And um, really check out the... um, institutional website because they do a very good job of recording and cataloging Australian wine. Yep, they're definitely talking to the trade and that's the first step, getting the gatekeepers on board and the consumers will follow. Education, 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 says the certified educator. Wine was made in Paris and its surrounding areas in the 19th century as recorded in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, until phylloxera hit, and Parisians began drinking the fruity wines of the Languedoc instead. But since 2015, a new urban winery, La Winerie Parisienne, has revived the tradition of Parisian wine and has now established its winemaking facilities in the Eiffel Tower, next to La Boue Parisienne restaurant on the first floor. The grapes come from the Department of Yvelines, where the Royal Chateau of Versailles is located west of Paris. The first harvest was completed on October 4th, with the intention to release the first wine from Merlot next year. So this is interesting. I mean, I think the closest wine region to Paris that I've been to is the Loire Valley, which was amazing. So can Paris produce good quality wine as well? Well, um, Chablis is quite close to Paris as well, and traditionally that's where uh, Parisians uh, drank a lot of their wine from. A region I have not visited, sadly. But we mentioned Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, there's actually quite a lot of references to Parisian wine. Best musical ever. Yeah, I don't know if there's references in the musical, but in the book there are. But the wines are described as quite green and underripe, and that's one of the reasons Parisian wine never really developed, as well as the uh, urbanisation of the area. But now we are living in an era of climate change where regions as far north as Paris might get the ripe, the grapes a bit riper. And given that England is producing quality wine now, maybe uh, Paris can. But is it economically feasible? 
that's where the issue comes in. So maybe you can get these grapes ripe and make a decent wine, but that land's going to be very, very expensive or uh, just not available. Or everyone will just be pissed off at you and then not let you plant. But then if you've got your winery in the Eiffel Tower, you've probably got some money behind you. Touche! UK supermarket Marks and Spencers. Marks and Sparks have said they are aiming to make their own label wines 100% vegan by 2022. Likewise, Spa, another chain, are aiming to have their own label 100% vegan by 2021. A little vegan competition going on there in the UK. Mm. Currently, the two retailers' wines are around 70% vegan, and this trend reflects interest in the UK in vegetarianism and veganism. So these vegan-friendly wines, such as the ones being made by M&S and Spa, uh, refer to the fact that the wines are not fined or filtered with animal products, such as egg white um, or sturgeon bladders. Um, But Katie, you've worked with vegan brands. Can you just talk about how they stress that veganism begins in the vineyard and not just ends with fining and filtration? Yes, that's one of the biggest obstacles in promoting a vegan brand or, you know, making it, producing it, selling it, is that... If you are a vegan consumer, you want to make sure that all aspects of production is vegan. So that starts in the vineyard, of course, when that comes to fertilizer, anything. I mean, they cannot be, there cannot be any animal products related, which can be quite difficult, especially when you're M&S and Spar producing probably, you know, producing these wines from bulk wine, how can you be certain that the vineyard management is also vegan? As everything with wine, it does start in the vineyard, but the major aspect of uh, vegan wines or vegetarian wines is the not using animal products for fining or filtration, which is very simple to do. There's very, lots of alternatives. So there's no real need to use um, egg whites or sturgeon bladders. Yeah, bentonite seems to be the go-to for most wineries, at least here in California, and more so, at least in my experience, and it does an effective job. But I will say that it's interesting that these kind of health-conscious, you know, vegan vegetarianism is hitting the UK so hard, because it's obviously uh, prevalent here in California, um, but seems to be top of mind for UK consumers as well. And I wonder if um, this trend will go into beer as well, because it's the same thing. Uh, the, the beers are filtered with, or, or the beers are fined with um, egg whites, and that's the only thing that stops them being vegan. So I wonder if they will uh, jump on that trend as well. Well, they can always turn to White Claw. We don't want that, do we, Katie? And now for our wine of the week, and this time I will turn it to Matthew to struggle with the pronunciation. Yes, apparently I got the name of the, or the pronunciation of this winery completely wrong when we were tasting it this week. Uh, some of it's quite simple, though. It's from Santa Rita Hills uh, in Santa Barbara County, where you were um, this week mm-hmm. or last week. Uh, grape varieties Pinot Noir, 2016. The, the vineyard itself that it comes from is Fay Siega. Blind Faith. Ah, that's what it means. Hmm, interesting. That's not the part he had trouble pronouncing. Well, hopefully I did that bit okay. But the um, the name of the winery is OJ Vineyard, I believe. Is that OJ Simpson? Orange juice? Ah, you're trying to say, oh, hi. And over the past week, while driving, driving past signs for oh, hi, I couldn't help but chuckle. 
Well, I'm glad I gave you some entertainment. It is spelt O-J-A-I. Oh, hi. O-J. So I hope uh, some listeners can understand my confusion. So however you say it, it retails for $55, and it's made by Adam Tolmack, uh, who set up Oban Clamat with Jim Clendenin in 1982 before establishing his own winery in 1991. So his grandfather bought the Ojai property in 1933, and he planted grapes in 1983, focusing on Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Syrah, and Pinot Noir as he developed the vineyard and worked with other properties in Santa Barbara. So this wine uh, comes from the Faisiega vineyard, which is just west of Sanford and Benedict. Very famous. Yeah, one of the most um, prestigious vineyards in Santa Barbara. And, and it's in Santa Rita Hills, which is the coolest AVA in California. What's very funny about that comment is that I heard that by many producers uh, around the Central Coast, that their region was the coolest in California. I guess it just goes to show that trends really can define the sort of messaging that winemakers have. But they did have uh, facts behind their observations with, you know, degree days and the like. Um, But we've got about three different AVAs in California competing to be the coolest. Well, I'm still sticking to the fact that Santa Rita Hills is the coolest. Um, it gets uh, the wind and the fog coming in from the ocean. And because the uh, the hills there um, run laterally rather than north to south, it really traps those um, fogs and breezes. And certainly the wines um, have that really fresh acidity and um, less of a rich, full, ripe body than uh, other wines in California. Right, so the wine is 13.5 ABV, 15% whole cluster, 15 months and 20% new French oak, and there are just 301 cases made. Yeah, that extra one case, just, you know, that's what we got, basically, one of those bottles. Are they going to send it to us for advertising their wine on this podcast? I hope so. I really like this wine. I was really impressed. It showed a real intensity to the fruit demonstrates California's uh, climate, but it's restrained as well. I don't know if you confuse this with Burgundy, but um, it was more in that style for sure. Cheers to that. That's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. A day late and a dollar short. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gone. So join us next Monday from Spain. And join us for another wind-up. We're going to be in Sherry, so expect lots of Sherry news. Cheerio! Cheerio!